Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Well, thank you very much, Will, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So you're on the other side of the world. Uh, we've spent a little bit of time trying to coordinate this interview, and thank you for your patience. Um, maybe just for listeners at the beginning, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and, and your current work focus, Will? Right. Well, uh, my background is is rather unusual. I've worked in very many uh, areas of what might probably be called environmental science from uh, environmental physics uh, through to climate change. Uh, And now really what I would uh, call myself would be an earth system scientist. Uh, So basically uh, there are a group of us who are trying to understand how the earth operates as a single integrated system, uh, how the system is changing. And and in particular, of course, uh, how human activities are becoming uh, the dominant force of driving change in the earth system. Uh, So I've been in this area for about 25 or 30 years, uh, worked mainly internationally. I was director of a big international program uh, with the uh, name International Geosphere Biosphere Program uh, for about seven years, and I've continued collaboration with uh, colleagues in um, Europe, North America, and indeed other parts of the world. Right, right. So you've been uh, uh, up close uh, on some of the uh, dramatic environmental changes that have been taking place in recent decades and, and, and building up, accelerating over time. Just wondering, um, clearly there's no shortage of, of environmental uh, problems we're facing and now we have the coronavirus, which is, which is not unrelated either. But I'm just wondering what in particular, is there anything that, that, that keeps you awake at the moment? Yeah, well, it's 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 some um, uh, work that we published about a year and a half ago, but we've been working on uh, this idea of tipping points in the Earth system for quite a while. Uh, that is, those are, are parts of the Earth system that you can push or perturb for a while, and they look to be stable, and, and you um, just cross a tipping point, and the entire system can flip. A good analogy is if you're out on a lake uh, on a kayak, uh, and you tip the kayak a bit, and it comes back to a nice stable position and you go on your merry way. But if you tip it just a bit too much, it flips all the way over. There's no intermediate state uh, and you're under the water and in a bit of strife. And we find that there are quite a few parts of the Earth system that actually show this behavior that they look to be stable until you push them past a critical point and then they can tip and go into another state. Uh, Well, recently a, a number of us started looking at uh, this issue of tipping points more systematically, uh, trying to map out what are the critical tipping points. Uh, and basically, we're looking at things like big ice sheets, like the Greenland ice sheet, the Antarctic ice sheets. Uh, we're looking at uh, ocean circulation, like the so-called Gulf Stream, uh, or more properly, the North Atlantic thermohaline circulation. And we were looking at big uh, biomes or ecosystems, like the Amazon rainforest, and most of these, if you look at their behavior in the in the distant past up to the present, they actually do show tipping point behavior. But I think the breakthrough we made um, a couple of years ago was to look at these uh, as an interlinked set of tipping points, not looking at them in isolation. And that brings up the idea of a of a tipping cascade, 
So there you can picture, say, a row of dominoes that are all set up in a line, and you start tipping the first couple, and it knocks the whole row down. So the concern there is that if we start triggering some of these tipping points, they will form a planetary tipping cascade, and they will, in fact, take the Earth system out of human influence or human control. And we would go to a very different state of the, of the system, one that we dubbed hothouse Earth in, in the paper. Uh, and it would be very hard for humans to thrive in. So that's what keeps me awake at night. That's what I worry about is that, that the, the Earth can be an angry beast uh, when you poke it with a big stick. And we are definitely hitting it with a big stick at the moment. Um, and it could get out of our control and, and go into conditions, into states that are going to be very del deleterious uh, for human well-being. So uh, how does it change things that these tipping elements are actually interlinked? Well, what that means is that um, we could face what we call a tipping cascade or uh, a state change in the Earth system as a whole. So let me give you an example of, of what, how some of these tipping elements might interact with each other. And we'll start up in the, the northern hemisphere, up in the northern high latitudes, uh, where things are happening fast. For example, Arctic sea ice is melting at an increasing rate. And of course, uh, that occurs during the northern hemisphere summertime. When that happens, as the sea ice uh, retreats, darker ocean water is uncovered. And of course, that absorbs more sunlight. That accelerates the heating in that region. That accelerates the loss of ice. And that uh, pushes the heat, the, the temperature even higher. So you see this feedback effect. But of course, sitting right next to the Arctic Ocean is the Greenland ice sheet. Uh, and as the uh, feedback from the uh, melting Arctic sea ice uh, intensifies, it also increases the melting uh, of the Greenland ice sheet. The Greenland ice sheet is mainly melting from on top, uh, so it's uh, increasingly uh, discharging fresh water onto the North Atlantic Ocean, uh, which sits on the surface of the ocean. This, in turn, is affecting the uh, North Atlantic Ocean circulation. In fact, we can already measure a slowdown uh, over the last half century of that circulation. That, that slowdown, in turn, is reducing rainfall over the Amazon basin down in Brazil, which is making it more vulnerable to uh, drought and fires, losing carbon to the atmosphere, which again accelerates the heating of the planet. So you can see this is how uh, four of these different tipping elements are actually linked together. Uh, and we can, we can pretty clearly make these links across other tipping elements too. So when these all start acting like a row of dominoes, one pushing the other, uh, you can start to see how a global scale tipping cascade could occur, which would, uh, in principle, shift the entire state of the Earth system uh, to another state. Right. Conceptually, I get that. In your research, do you have a, a sense of the magnitude of uh, impact by looking at it, by taking into account the links between the different tipping elements? Yeah, so what we can do is we can, we can make some crude estimates of how much uh, the, the uh, various tipping elements can increase warming. And we can use, uh, at least for many of them, uh, global temperature as a, uh, as a metric because many of them release carbon to the atmosphere or else absorb more sunlight, like the, like the Arctic Ocean, and increase temperature. So uh, a rough estimate uh, now is that if we, um, through our own emissions, push temperature up to two degrees, we may add another half a degree or degree through these tipping elements, depending on, on how severe the tipping cascade could be. 
And of course, that in turn would take the temperature up to two and a half and three, uh, which may trigger more tipping elements like melting permafrost uh, or um, the uh, methane hydrates, which are locked in the sediments under the Arctic Ocean. And if that happens, then the temperature goes even higher. So I think in a worst case scenario, what you could see would be that um, a two degree temperature rise driven by human emissions could trigger further warming up to uh, a a total of three or four degrees uh, Celsius, which would be a much hotter state than um, than uh, humans have ever experienced before. So that's really the danger of this tipping cascade is it could, in effect, take the trajectory of the Earth system out of our control and push it to a hotter state, even if we got emissions under control. That's terrifying. To what extent do the forecasts and the IPCC and other models that have been developed take into account these considerations, Will? They're beginning to do that through what they call large-scale uh, singular events and large-scale um, discontinuities. So when you look at the um, special report on the 1.5 degree Paris target, uh, many of these were actually assessed by the ICC, IPCC. And they found that at one degree of warming where we are today, there's a moderate risk that we're going to start uh, destabilizing some of these and we can actually see true. When you get up to 2.5, which is far as, as far as that IPCC report went, uh, they're, they're talking now about a moderate to high risk uh, that we could uh, start many of these tipping points. So yes, they are being assessed, uh, and, and the initial assessment will get more, obviously, in the AR6 when it comes out next year. It's certainly suggesting that when you get up toward two degrees, uh, you have a significant risk that you are going to destabilize uh, several of these tipping elements. Right. Um, not, not good news at all. Are there one or two tipping elements that you think we should uh, pay attention? I mean, clearly all of them, but that are, that are more crucial, that uh, may be more linked to other tipping elements. Uh, are there one or two that you'd point to? Well, I would point to three. I think the Arctic sea ice is a critical one because I think we're close to that tipping point. We may, some people say we may have actually crossed it. I think West Antarctica is also extremely vulnerable. We're seeing a lot of activity down there in terms of destabilization of, of, uh, of ice sheets down there. That could add eventually three meters to sea level rise. But the third one I would really nominate as being very important is the North Atlantic uh, Ocean Circulation. Uh, and the reason I say that is that is linked to so many different tipping points that it, it acts as a real connector. And, and one that could start uh, uh, accelerating other tipping points as well. So I would, I would argue that we really need to keep a close watch on what's happening in the North Atlantic. I think that's going to be a crucial part of the entire Earth system. Right, right. That's a very uh, dark prospect. You talk about tipping points. I guess point systems can tip in different ways. Is it necessarily um, a, a negative thing? Are there some systems that you look at? Or are there some systems in the Earth system that could tip in a positive way? And I'm also interested, um, <laughs> maybe biting off more than I can chew here, or the, in, in terms of the interaction between the Earth system and social systems, because clearly that's a very important uh, connection in the sense that you know that the kind of behaviors and the group behaviors and mass behaviors that are taking place at the moment and, and how we change those is is is, is terribly important yeah no, that's a, that's a really good point that in fact um we we view the social systems and humans we are part of the earth system 
So uh, when, the way we define the Earth system is not just the biophysical Earth system. Uh, it's the entire Earth system, which inclu includes us humans, uh, our technologies, our societies, and so on. I mean, we evolved on the Earth uh, from primates, so we are indeed uh, part of the Earth system. We've obviously de developed now powerful technologies. Uh, we've developed uh, very complex social systems and so on. So, But we are part of the Earth system. In fact, if you want to look at a... Um, sort of a very high-level uh, composition of the Earth system would be of three great spheres that are all interacting. One is the geosphere, the non-living part of the Earth system, uh, and that has to do with things like the ice, like the physical climate system, uh, like the rocks and so on. Uh, and then the living part of the Earth system, of course, which distinguishes Earth from other planets, the so-called biosphere, plants, animals, bacteria, all the way up to humans. And then, of course, now, we have what some call the anthroposphere or some call the technosphere. And that's the um, advanced human uh, society civilizations, which have now become the dominant driver of change. But that's sort of a, uh, by way of background. To get to your point of can there be positive tipping points? <clears throat> and the answer is yes. And they probably lie in the social, in, in, the, in the anthroposphere. Uh, and we're talking increasingly about the way we deal with things like climate change, biodiversity degradation, uh, and so on, is not via, not via gradual change in human societies or in governance systems or in economic systems. It's by crossing tipping points that can lead to rapid and decisive change um, with, with how we do things. A good example of that, of course, is the COVID-19 crisis where um, that has already caused one tipping point in terms of a, a lot of things that we sort of held as sacrosanct, like the new neoliberal economic system, and all that got turned on their head in a matter of weeks uh, when we started dealing with this, uh, with this virus. And that's opened up a lot of discussion now about when we do come out of the uh, COVID-19 crisis, out of the pandemic, um, what sort of society will we have? Uh, will we go back to um, the society we had pre-pandemic, um, which was high growth rate, high consumption, uh, huge rates of pollution, both locally all the way to globally, globally, or will we actually um, transform ourselves? In other words, will we cross a tipping point uh, to towards a much more sustainable society? Now, nobody knows the answer to that question, of course, uh, but that would be a good example of a potential very positive tipping point, uh, and it would it would happen in the anthroposphere part of the of the Earth system. Well, very interesting, and uh, I'm just wondering uh, the the, the uh, topology, uh, the Anthropocene. Have you thought about calling it the Capitalocene, and the degree to which the last thirty years or forty years, um, the the vast a vast amount of the carbon emissions have taken place during that time, with a pretty wide runaway kind of phase of of, of economic growth with deregulation and so forth and somehow when people talk about the Anthropocene it kind of puts a lens on on, on, on humans as it were as, as, as they've evolved but looking at the capital scene maybe uh, I find maybe uh, more helpful in terms of looking at a particular set of political and economic uh, values and processes at a particular time and that is in a sense more manageable if you want to change if you're looking at changing human nature the humans have overtaken the planet and destroyed it or put in place more progressive political and economic policies. Yeah, no, that's th that uh, idea of the capitalist scene uh, 
uh, has been floated uh, quite a bit. In fact, there are quite a few different names for this new uh, geological time interval. Uh, another one you hear about is the Manthropocene, uh, uh, referring to the fact that it's mainly males who have been driving this uh, destructive economic system, not women. Uh, and so, um, <clears throat> so that's another one. There are other variations out there too uh, that I've seen. Of course, the term Anthropocene came uh, from a meeting that we had within the IGBP in the year 2000, uh, and it came from Paul Crutzen, uh, who's a noted atmospheric chemist. In fact, he's a Nobel laureate uh, for his work on the ozone hole. But Paul's one of the most outstanding uh, Earth system scientists of, of, uh, of all of us. And um, he was the one who was a student enough when he was simply looking at the observations uh, of what was happening to the planet. This was in the year 2000, and we were looking at these very sharp curves of, of changes in um, human activity. And at that time, we, didn't, we hadn't split it between developed and developing countries, between the OECD countries or the Anglophone countries, or any sort of splitting you want to do. Uh, we were just looking at, at humans as, as a species in the Earth system. Uh, and when we saw all the uh, changes to the Earth system itself, to the biosphere, to the geosphere, and how tightly they correlated uh, with changes uh, in human societies, it became pretty obvious that uh, there was a strong cause effect here. And that's when Paul, who, who made that, the, that connection there, uh, uttered out the word, you know, uh, we're not in the Holocene anymore, we're in the Anthropocene. Having said that, I think you raise a good point in that um, the word Anthropocene is an all-encompassing umbrella term that hides a lot of rich detail in uh, human societies, and particularly the inequality issue. Uh, and that's, uh, of course, when you use the word capitalocene, that immediately uh, tells you that there is uh, that we're going to start dealing with some pretty strong inequalities. So I think um, in terms of um, the natural sciences and in terms of the geological sciences, uh, which are now uh, undergoing the process of uh, uh, formalizing the Anthropocene in the geological timescale. I think Anthropocene is a, an appropriate term. But I think once we start talking, uh, digging into the Anthropocene, uh, then I think all sorts of other um, ideas, all sorts of other ter terms uh, certainly can be enlightening. So I think um, that just uh, having the Anthropocene out there in the first place is really triggering extremely rich and important discussion amongst um, the social sciences and humanities scholars uh, about what really is the Anthropocene, who's responsible, why are we in the situation we are, where are we going, what do we need to do to change this, and all of those are extremely important questions. Uh, so I hope that the, the overarching term that Paul came up with uh, two decades ago now is uh, hopefully still is uh, serving a useful purpose in terms of, of triggering uh, such discussions and debates. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about the time frame in which uh, you, you did the research, you've been looking at the tipping points and so forth, and also the time frame in which we uh, need to consider when we're dealing with carbon emissions and so forth, um, how long the carbon actually, carbon CO2 remains in the atmosphere, how long it takes to, to, to actually, you know, to, to reduce that, or how long it takes before our actions today we can expect to have an impact on levels of carbon emissions and there, thereafter uh, the climate? Yeah, those are some, some really good questions. So um, let me start by uh, talking about um, this notion that started with the students with uh, Greta Thunberg and her movement, uh, the fact that we are now in a 
climate emergency. Now, that immediately tells you something about a time scale, saying that the problem is immediate. There is no more time to lose. We are in trouble. And uh, I think there's good scientific evidence that the students are right. And, and a good way of looking at it is looking at two concepts. Uh, one is called reaction time, and the other is called time for intervention. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's take a, a tipping uh, a tipping point or tipping element, uh, and let's take the Greenland ice sheet, for example. Now, uh, to stabilize that ice sheet so it uh, will not cross a tipping point where the melting becomes uh, irreversible and unstoppable, and we are destined to, to lose enough ice to raise seas about seven meters. So uh, we don't know where that tipping point lies. When you lose enough ice that it's lowered far enough the surface of that ice sheet that it's in a warmer climate and it melts even more and you can see the feedback mechanism at work there. Let's just say, for example, that that tipping point is on present trajectories 20 to 25 years into the future. But countries are talking about finally getting climate change slowed and perhaps stabilized by reaching net zero emissions by 2050. That's 30 years away. So that would be a measure of our reaction time. So if the time for intervening is shorter than the reaction time, then you are committed to crossing the tipping point, which we may already be in terms of Greenland. So that's how you can define that we are in an emergency situation. Uh, a good example might be that the Titanic is that it takes uh, a while to stop or turn around a ship. And if you notice that you are heading for an iceberg, and your reaction time is longer uh, than the time to intervene that you have left, you're going to strike the iceberg. Uh, and we know what happened to the Titanic. So you need to be able to react far enough in advance to stop crossing these tipping points. So let's just take uh, the number that a lot of um, countries are talking about, net zero by 2050, and let's say that our reaction time then is 30 years. Actually, it's a little bit longer because uh, it, it takes the climate a bit longer to stabilize after we get emissions. So anyway, let's take 30 years. Then let's look at some tipping points. What about Arctic sea ice? That's the floating ice on top of the Arctic Ocean. Uh, some people think we've already crossed that tipping point. If not, we will cross it probably in the next five to 10 years. So that's probably gone. Uh, West Antarctica, again, that could be a five to 10 year uh, uh, intervention time left, which means uh, that's going to go. Uh, the Great Barrier Reef, or coral reefs in general, um, we've had three mass bleaching events in five years uh, on the Great Barrier Reef. The last one uh, has just now occurred, um, and it's the first one that uh, bleached the entire reef north to south. Um, the intervention time there is left is probably zero. So that means we are already crossing the tipping point there. So you can do that analysis, and it tells you that net zero by 2050 is exceptionally dangerous. There is a high risk that we will start this tipping cascade, uh, which will then become irreversible. To put it in more IPCC-like framework, net zero by um, 2050 will put us in a two to two and a half degree world. Um, and the special report uh, on the 1.5 degree temperature rise actually did assess the uh, risk of tipping points as being high at 2.5 degrees. So all of this science is telling us that if we don't get emissions down much faster than we're planning, and if we don't 
come very close to hitting that 1.5 degree target, we may already be uh, in deep trouble as far as a tipping cascade. So when you work backwards, if you want to meet the Paris target of 1.5 uh, or have a chance, that means you need to cut emissions by half by 2030, that's one decade, and you need to get to net zero by about 2040. Uh, that means working backwards that every year now matters. This is the, de the definition of a climate emergency. So this is a good way, I think, of how you can use time frames, time scales, to say something that appears to be a long-term prob problem. Well, all right, if we don't get emissions down uh, now, we 2025, 20, 2030, 20, when, when, when the technology is cheaper, we can do it then. Well, sorry, that's almost surely going to be too late. So um, this whole idea of, of timescales, it's a subtle issue, it's a complex issue, but it's one that needs to be talked about much, much more uh, because uh, we're, we're headed for a Titanic-like outcome uh, if we don't start steering and slowing the ship from now. Very interesting, if, if terrifying. <laughs> well, um, what's your view on cutting emissions? And I, I don't know who it is who said, but um, uh, somebody said this, uh, 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 or, or might as well, that whenever climate change policies are seen to conflict economic growth and development, climate change loses every time. Uh, and maybe that's apropos, particularly in Australia. Um, but uh, maybe if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, that's uh, in striking contrast to the COVID-19 crisis, uh, where suddenly um, we can shut down economies, we can stop all sorts of things uh, if we have to, to protect human life. So um, it's, again, this is the timing issue we're talking about, that the COVID crisis is immediate. It's in our faces. You know, people are dying now. We can see that this is an issue we have to deal with. Climate change is sort of a long fuse, big bang problem. It's not immediate. Uh, but it's actually far more dangerous than the COVID-19 crisis. So um, that, there, I, th I think we, we really uh, see the difference. And as you said, when it comes to these longer-term problems, the climate loses out almost every time. Uh, Australia is a good example of this. Um, in fact, we're in a very unusual place because um, compared to most other developed countries, we are getting clobbered uh, more directly and more severely by climate change than most others. I've talked about the Great Barrier Reef. Everyone knows about the serious bushfires we've just come through uh, uh, during this past summer. Uh, there are all sorts of other things happening, severe droughts, uh, exceptional rainfall. All these things are happening. Uh, the science is absolutely clear. Uh, climate change is playing a strong, even dominant influence in a lot of these. But at the same time, our economy is strongly driven by the resource sector. And the resource sector has two of the big three fossil fuels, coal and gas. Uh, and despite all the evidence, despite the opinion polls that are increasingly saying people want meaningful action on climate change, we get none. Uh, and the reason for that, in my view, is a, is a corrupted um, political economic system uh, where the big end of town, the fossil fuel industries, are basically um, buying out the government through uh, donations, all sorts of other things. So, so um, our present conservative government is quite happy to uh, take uh, the appropriate hard action on COVID-19, but at the same time, uh, totally uh, ignoring uh, the longer term, even bigger threat of climate change uh, and continuing not only to support, but to expand the fossil fuel industry. While at the same time, Australia burns, the Great Barrier Reef dies, people suffer, uh, ecosystems are getting battered, 
and yet we continue on. So it's a real, it's a real um, paradox uh, that we can deal with something like COVID-19 uh, quickly and decisively, but we cannot, uh, so far we have not been able to prove that we can uh, get on top and deal with the climate change issue. Yes, it's very interesting. So how, how do we cut emissions? I mean, a big question that operates at many different levels. Talked about the, the, the government level and the policy level, um, the, you know, working with the, the, the IPCC framework and so forth. I know uh, some people I've, I've interviewed have been quite critical of that framework. Um, I, 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 you know, and, and that kind of approach. How do you see the governance, as it were? Um, or is, is this something that you've looked at or do you think this is important? Oh, absolutely, because uh, there's, there's a sort of discussion, debate between uh, what can I do as an individual? For example, I can fly less, um, I can use less, less electricity, I can put solar panels on my roof, all this sort of stuff. And that's, that's actually good, and, and you'll feel good about that. Uh, but we're not going to solve this um, unless we take collective action, because this is ultimately a collective action problem. Uh, and large-scale collective action problem, and that's where governance becomes really important. Um, there are some, some bright spots in the Australian uh, story here too, and that's the sub-national level where some um, strong action is being taken. Uh, the two leading uh, jurisdictions are the state of South Australia, uh, which uh, has uh, well over 50% uh, renewable already. It's dropping its emissions, uh, and it's uh, doing quite well economically. Uh, and the other one is where I live, which is uh, the Australian Capital Territory, uh, encompassing the city of Canberra, a small jurisdiction, um, approaching half a million people. But we have already cut our emissions by well over 50% on 2005 levels. In fact, it's 40% on 1990 levels, which were much lower uh, than 2005. How did we do it? Um, we saw that the low-hanging fruit was going 100% renewable. So in the space of nine years, from 2011 to 2020, we have gone from a tiny fraction of our electricity being renewable to 100%. Uh, and that's a mix of solar PV, industrial scale, and wind farms. Um, and what we did was we used a reverse auction process um, by the, the ACT government putting out a bid saying, we want X megawatt capacity of electricity. Um, and various companies can bid to supply us with that, and the lowest bid gets the gets the project. But it has to be a zero carbon source. And in practice, in 2011, there were only two uh, technologies which were um, on the market then, and that was solar PV and uh, wind. And we went through that reverse action uh, auction process um, uh, a bit at a time, and we rode the cost curve down. So as that decade went on, the cost dropped dramatically, uh, and we were getting electricity at cheaper and cheaper costs to the point now where are we are 100% renewable, and we have some of the lowest electricity prices in Australia. Now, we talked about tipping points. That was a tipping point uh, because that was fought quite uh, quite hard uh, in a quite hard way. A lot of the economists within the government said, we can't possibly do this. This will break the territory. Territory, we have to uh, stick with the tried and true cheaper fossil fuels. Uh, but for, to give them credit, the government said, no, we are going to take this on and do it. But that's now, that's now uh, I think, created a tipping point that we've crossed. Now that we're 100% renewable, we want to get the other 60% out emissions out of our economy, which is transport, built infrastructure, heating, cooling, waste, and so on. And so now we've legislated to do that by 2045. 
Um, we're on our way to decarbonizing the transport sector and so on. Uh, and now we have really widespread support. So I think we crossed a social tipping point in Canberra. Uh, and, and now the, uh, the entire community is behind uh, the push to get us totally net zero by 2045. When you look at the carbon budget that's, uh, uh, that uh, uh, is accompanying that uh, emission reduction curve, we would be at about a 1.7 to 1.8 degree temperature rise if everyone else followed the Canberra model. So it does show that you can meet the Paris targets, but it actually requires transformative, decisive action that really fundamental, fund, fundamentally changes not only technologies, but societies as well. So that's the challenge we face. Yes, that's very impressive. Very impressive. Uh, Will, now, an, an earlier interview, I think uh, you did uh, maybe last year, I think it was in Auckland, and you were talking, I think, about uh, very interesting, for some of the issues you've touched on earlier, the Earth Systems Perspective. And uh, what, what I guess you were there was a kind of bifurcation, a kind of moment where we we're going down one or two avenues, as it were, uh, possibilities. And, and I, I, you said something here we are in control of where the earth is going. Um, and I wondered what you meant by that, talking about steering the earth to a stabilized uh, uh, earth. I think that's what you're calling it. And it, 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 I just wonder uh, about thinking about it in those terms. I mean, clearly there are things we can do, but this question of agency and action and being able to, uh, I, I, I just wondering if that's something that you, yeah, maybe just talk a little bit about that to begin with. And then yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so, yeah. So, so that's the other side of the tipping cascade. So the tipping cascade I talked about earlier that takes you to hothouse earth, as I mentioned, takes the earth system out of human influence or control. In other words, the internal feedbacks in the system take over and become the dominant driver. So, but the other uh, side of the fork in the road is this, what we call the stabilized earth uh, in our paper. And, and that's, uh, we use the word steering, I think, steering the earth system uh, to a stable state that isn't quite like the Holocene, the state we've come out of, um, but it's something that might be manageable. But, uh, and that requires human action, but it takes, but it's human action to, to reduce our pressure on the earth system uh, so that we don't cross these tipping points. So, so that means that we, uh, we don't try to control your system. We don't try to geoengineer it. We, in fact, try to control ourselves uh, because ourselves are the problem. And, and we generate uh, different types of societies, different types of types of economies, different types of technologies that are all designed to take pressure off the Earth system, uh, not to make wealthy people even wealthier. So that's uh, really what the problem is there. There's some really good ideas out there on how one might do this. Um, there's a wonderful... Um, concept called donut economics uh, that Kate Rayworth, who's uh, an economist at Oxford, I believe, uh, she's the uh, creator of that. And it's a, it, I think it's a very powerful concept in that she looks at a donut where the inner ring is the social well-being that we want, more equality uh, in terms of gender equality, income equality. Uh, we want higher uh, quality of life. Uh, better education, all these things that create a better society. But at the same time, we have to live within the limits of the planet. And that's where the so-called planetary boundaries concept comes in, which is a way of trying to define the critical processes in the Earth system uh, that some of which may have tipping points, not all of them, uh, but that we need to respect where boundaries might lie. Uh, that if we stay within the so-called safe operating space, then we're unlikely 
to push the system over into the hothouse Earth trajectory. So this is a sort of fork in the road or the technical term bifurcation of the, of the pathways. Yes. Yes, yes. I spoke to Kate uh, for uh, a while ago for the podcast, and I think it's very, very interesting. Uh, ties together really important ideas, and I, I, I know she's just released a a city based donut for for Amsterdam, which looks very interesting and and ties together those questions, as you say, the, the environmental limits and the kind of social values that w- that we would uh, w- want to have as well. And I think it's a very powerful powerful way of looking at it. Um, that there seems to have been, and I don't know whether you, you'd agree with this, but um, a, a uh, an approach in the in, uh, maybe not just the scientific community, but an idea that um, if only we could explain uh, what was going on better, if the scientists were better, if we could talk about this in a clearer way, uh, then people would get the message, and you know we would see massive uh, change. Um, and, and I think uh, I just wonder to what degree uh, you think that 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 has been the case uh, is is a good way of looking at it. And it, it does seem to be that we've started to see, and, I, and Naomi Klein was talking about this kind of climate nationalism, climate fascism, and so forth. So, so, so the, the debate in, in certain, well, not necessarily the debate, but the way the question's been framed, been moved from, from one of whether it's happening or not to, well, yeah, yeah, maybe it's happening, but uh, actually these are the kind of changes we need to do to, to, to actually deal with this, which might be to you know, close borders uh, and get involved in a, you know, a more nationalistic and, and you know, arguably more fascistic kind of approach. So I'm just wondering about what you think about that idea and about the, the communication and, and, and how the, I guess, because people have become very much aware, more aware of, of what's going on in, in the environment, certainly even in the last six months to a year, there's been quite, quite a sea change. Yeah, no, look, I, th- I think that's important. And I think um, getting authoritative scientific information there about the nature of the risks um, is important. I think it's necessary, um, but it's not sufficient. I think we need more than just the science. Um, and I think we see this with the, um, with the COVID-19 crisis, uh, again, where you see science playing an extremely strong role in terms of the uh, medical sciences, the epidemiology, the infectious disease people, and so on, who are really in the driver's seat in terms of giving advice on what, what needs to be done. Um, and it's more, more, more or less being heated in most places around the world, uh, no matter what style of government was, was in place when this crisis hit. Uh, but then once we know what we need to do to um, solve this COVID-19 crisis, then there are all sorts of social actions, social innovations, uh, and so on, which are, are helping us adapt to the life we have to have if we want to stop this pandemic. Um, so... Uh, in a way, the science is definitely really important and it's necessary, um, but it's not sufficient in terms of just getting it, getting us through. And the same with climate change. I and mean, climate change does have some uh, characteristics of COVID-19. Uh, one is it has the potential to be have disastrous con- consequences uh, for humanity. Um, second of all, uh, to really solve this, you do have to have science and you need, need to listen to the science. Um, which tells you uh, the nature of the problem, how the system is behaving, and what we need to do to stabilize the system. Uh, Third thing, which is really important, is to really avoid uh, a crisis. You have to act before it gets really bad. And that's been made really clear in the COVID-19 crisis, that you want to flatten the curve before it peaks. You don't want to let it peak. Um, We haven't got to that point yet in the climate change issue, uh, and that's some of that timing we were talking about earlier, 
that to avoid the Titanic hitting the ice, you actually have to stop it or turn it well in advance uh, of, of getting close to the iceberg. Uh, and we haven't got to that point yet on climate change. I think one of the big changes now, though, is that a lot of the technologies we need to solve the climate change issue are really coming on stream faster than we thought. Uh, they're certainly becoming economically viable and so on, which, which takes away one big constraint. So now we're dealing more with, with politics and, and vested interests. And there, I think, the social tipping point idea is a really important one. Uh, and, and that's uh, our hope that, uh, that we can act with speed. Tipping points can happen fast. Social tipping points can happen fast. Uh, and they can surprise, uh, surprise even the experts on, on that when they look back and say, why didn't we see this coming? Uh, so I think that's, that's what gives one, one hope is that the action that's building uh, in many parts of the world may be enough within the next few years to tip, uh, tip the scales on, on the climate change issue. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. Earth system science, can you just maybe, going back to that, uh, talk a little bit about that and, and where, uh, where we are, or where, 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 where Earth system science is, as, as it were. It seems uh, that the Earth systems must be uh, complex by, or more complex by many orders of magnitude than, than other systems that we're used to. Uh, looking at, or that I mean, I guess that the whole area of, of, of systems thinking itself and uh, is, is is less developed, maybe than 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 our more linear approaches to so forth. Can you maybe just talk about what what you think is is interesting that's going on at the moment in this area, and that might feed into how we think about and deal with the climate crisis? Yeah, well, well, first of all, of course, the the term Earth system science is in the singular. System is a, is a singular, so we're looking at the Earth as as one system, uh, and that uh, originates from uh, a guy called Vladimir Vernadsky back in the 1920s, who was talking about how the biosphere and the geosphere interacted to form one system. And of course, famously, uh, uh, James Lovelock with his Gaia hypothesis was also one of the key people in the evolution of Earth system science. Uh, but the point there is that all this complexity underneath the level of the Earth system, a lot of that dampens out. Uh, and so what you have to do or what, look at what are the key factors that can either stabilize or disrupt or destabilize or transform the Earth system, singular, as a whole. So you look at the planetary system as a single system. Uh, and then you look at what are the important processes, atmospheric ocean circulation, the biosphere, the carbon cycle, the nutrient cycles, uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, and others, and so on. Uh, and you look at the energy exchange between various parts of the system and so on. So you can uh, take a, a top-down view and say, what are the few things we really need to know to understand how the system operates? Um, and then you can start to see where are the critical points at which one can intervene in this system. So um, the tipping point idea is, is, is a classic one here because in complex system theory, um, one way of looking at systems, complex systems, is that they exist in well-defined states uh, and they undergo transitions between these states, oftentimes in a highly nonlinear way. So this gets you away from the simple cause-effect logic, which dominates still a lot of, a lot of uh, the natural sciences. So that in a complex system way, you can push the system and prod the system and disrupt the system 
to a point, and it looks very stable. So you think, well, this is a great system. We can get away with anything until you start crossing those tipping points, uh, and then you, can, then you can see a trajectory of the system uh, away to another state. Uh, and uh, when you look at the, the key handful of tipping points in the Earth system and look at their linkages, that's when you get to this idea of a tipping cascade or um, a point of no return in, in the Earth system. And when you look at the long geological past, you can see complex system behavior at various points in the Earth system. You can see long gradual change. You can see abrupt changes. You can see an oscillatory behavior as we have in about the last 1.2 million years. Uh, So you can see uh, very, very many features of complex system dynamics in the way the Earth system has behaved. So this is a different paradigm, a different framework than the, the, the classical scientific reductionist framework, which is to take a piece of the Earth system out of its context and studied in great detail, holding everything else constant. But then you lose the, uh, you lose the uh, dynamics of how the system actually operates. Um, so I, I think uh, it's useful to have um, the classical way of doing science, uh, but we need to complement that with complex systems theory and modeling uh, to understand uh, much better how the Earth system might behave. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And 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 w- w- where is that now? What's next for you, Will, in terms of your research and what you're doing? All right. Well, I, I think I think now we're trying to get a bigger bigger handle on this idea of social tipping points. Um, I'm really enjoying working with social scientists and humanities scholars who can really start elucidating all the intricate uh, details of what the anthroposphere actually looks like, and very importantly, not to view it as a monolithic uh, humanity as a whole sort of thing, but to look at the various uh, knowledge systems and ways uh, we can look at the earth. Uh, One of my colleagues likes to describe this as a democracy of voices in terms of how we look at and deal with the earth system, which is very important. And I guess for me, um, sitting here in Australia, one of the voices that I'm really trying to learn more about are the indigenous peoples around the the planet. We are in a good situation here in Australia. We have the oldest continuous civilization on in Earth history, and that's, of course, the indigenous Australians who have been here for about 60 to 65,000 years. Uh, and they have some very interesting ways of thinking, different ways of thinking about the role of humanity in the Earth system. And very importantly, they do have a system-level understanding uh, of the environment around them uh, and of the planet as a whole. So that's where I'm, I'm sort of taking myself as trying to uh, get out of my natural scientist skin for a little bit and try to learn more from my colleagues in the uh, natural sciences and, and the social sciences and the humanities. Well, I wish you the very best with all that, Will, and thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your research, your ideas, are very interesting and, and very powerful, and uh, thank you for that. My pleasure. Thank you. for. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.